Good morning. Glad everyone's here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go ahead and pull them out at this time and uh, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Um, We will be in a plethora of different verses this morning, kind of outside of the norm. Usually we stick in one passage, but uh, we'll be in several different passages this morning as we uh, begin on a short three-part series on church leadership. And so turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 17 is is where we're going to start off. And then, like I said, you'll have to kind of play Bible drill with me a little bit. We're going to be here and there, uh, mostly pretty much all in the the New Testament. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and do that. Uh, If you don't happen to have your Bibles, uh, the text should be on the screen uh, for your viewing pleasure. And so uh, as you're turning, um, I'd invite you to do this with me. Let's go ahead and pray uh, one more time, and we'll ask God to bless our time and uh, his word uh, to us together on this vital, um, vital subject of leadership in the church. And so would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and we quiet our hearts uh, before you. Father, we quiet our minds before you. We calm our nerves before you in my case and uh, sharpen our nerves and our wits in uh, other cases. Father, we ask that you would help us to concentrate. Uh, We pray that you would help us this morning to focus. Father, that the things that might be distracting to us, events of the day, events of the week, responsibilities of this afternoon or maybe a week uh, to come, We pray that you would help us for a moment to set that aside um, because we have your word before us. Um, It's your holy word, it's your inerrant word, it's your perfect word, and you desire to speak to us on uh, so many facets of life. And Father, we're grateful that you have preserved for us um, instruction for your church, for the local church, and for our church here at Grace Bible Church. Father, we're grateful that you are clear on leadership in the church and that you speak um, to us in a multitude of passages echoing one voice that there needs to be called leadership in the church, there needs to be qualified leadership in the church, there needs to be godly leadership in the church, and there needs to be servant leadership in the church. Men who are willing to risk, who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to suffer, who are willing to lead boldly for the sake of Christ and for his mission. And so as we embark on this short yet vital series on leadership and your church and leadership here in our church, uh, we ask for open hearts, for open minds, that we would be willing to receive what you have for us from your word as individuals, as believers in Christ, and as a church corporately, and that we would be willing to follow you and your commands and your outline for a healthy, strong church. And so we ask for your blessings. Spirit, we ask that you would come. Guard my lips. Help me to speak what is true and only true. Not my opinion, but yours. And uh, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they again would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and that hearts would be open to you and uh, towards your word. And so we ask it in the great name of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin... um, this morning, reading you a, a short excerpt 
from a book that I've re- recently purchased and have been reading. Um, this may be a book for you. See, see it? It's you know, real thin, short. In fact, the title of the book, the title of the series of books is called this, A Book You'll Actually Read. <laughs> and so if you're like, you know, you don't like reading and you like short books, this is a series for you and for me. And uh, this particular book is called A Book You'll Actually Read on Church Leadership uh, by Pastor Mark Driscoll up in, uh, up in Seattle. I want to share with you a bit of uh, the comments he makes in the introduction to this short book as he begins to talk about leadership in his church and as he uh, kind of shares, uh, shares with us in an autobiographical kind of way about the struggles as he planted his church in just the utter significance of good, godly, healthy leadership in his church. And uh, I think the words will be true not only for him, uh, but for churches everywhere and for churches here on the significance uh, of church leadership. And so I'll just read a short bit of this. Uh, different, uh, in different locations. In the fall of 1996, we officially launched Mars Hill Church in Seattle. I was 25 years of age and had been a Christian since the age of 19. Our city was among the least churched in the nation with more dogs than either children or Christians. <laughs> uh, our church was about as big as a Mormon family. Our budget was meager. Our leadership structure was informal. And as a result, our ministry was painful. In the first few years, our church experienced a great number of tensions. Many of them were about conflicting theological beliefs on everything from the Bible to Jesus, hell, women in ministry, mode of baptism, and the return of Jesus, which I, which I, uh, which I hoped would happen soon so that I could get out of the mess that I had made by starting a church. <laughs> Without formal leadership and structures in place, it was not long before the most vocal, networked, and pushy people starting asserting, started asserting themselves as leaders in our little church and causing a great amount of division. Their varying demands quickly sidetracked our mission for our church to love the city and to see it transformed by the power of Jesus. Our internal church strife quickly overshadowed our external cultural mission. So he goes on to describe how this was re- resolved a, a few pages later. Anyways, getting back to our struggling little church of anarchy and dissent, it was at that time that I realized that I needed to install qualified leaders and to empower them with the authority to help lead the church by disciplining some, kicking others out, uh, re- training the teachable, encouraging the broken, empowering other leaders, and reaching the lost before the lunatics completely overtook the asylum slash church plant. <laughs> we, needed, uh, we needed leaders so that we could examine our mission to bring the gospel of Jesus to our city and to, uh, in word and deed. The obvious need for biblically-based, formal, and qualified leadership led me on a lengthy study of how a church should be organized. I never had been a pastor before in a church or even a formal member of a church of any kind. So I studied scripture. Good place to start. Read dozens of books on church government, as an aside, which was as exciting as watching ice melt. I think it's a little bit more exciting than that, but he read, I read dozens more books on church history and different Christian movements and met with pastors of various churches to hear how they were organized. And uh, I'll end our little time uh, with this. In the end, I arrived at what I believed was a model of church government that was both biblically sound and practically effective. Our t- I taught our little church on these matters, and before long we had implemented the kind of church government that I was convinced was most, was most faithful. Immediately, our church began to grow in both health and in size. 
And I wanted to read just a little bit of this pastor's experience because I think it's true not only from his experience, but I think it's true of churches uh, around the world and here in our states that uh, a healthy, church, healthy leadership uh, grows into a healthy church. And where there is lack of healthy leadership, I think there is a lack of a healthy church. And so what we're going to do this morning is embark on a three-part study. Uh, I've entitled it The Ox. Um, and you may be wondering why in the world I've, I've chosen that. Turn with me, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 we get an image of the elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. We're going to talk about all of those terms in a bit. But we get an image of the elders in the church being likened to oxes. And so I, I steal the title from Scripture. 1 Timothy 5:17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. For the Scripture, scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, Paul talks about here how uh, leadership in the church should reap financial benefit from their church, but I think uh, the image is broadened even uh, more. Um, I love the image of, of the church leader, of the elder, of the pastor being an ox, because as leaders, as pastors, as elders, what we're doing is we're plotting to cultivate spiritual ground in our people and in our, in, in our community. And oftentimes it's laborious, oftentimes it's slow, oftentimes it's step by step, but after a while you see spiritual fruit. And so I've entitled this three-part series, The Ox. The Ox. Um, in uh, scripture, the Bible calls elders, pastors, bishops, uh, different things. There are different images, aside from the ox, uh, that is used of a pastor elder. Um, uh, among the more, the more interesting and significant ones, uh, in 1 Peter 5, Elders are called shepherds, and that's because the people of the church are called the sheep. And so the shepherd leads the sheep, tends to the sheep, guards the sheep, cor- corrects the sheep. Uh, also, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have this trifold image of soldier, athlete, and farmer. And so uh, Paul says that pastor elders are like soldiers, that they are enlisted in God's service, and that they shouldn't tang- entangle themselves in worldly affairs so that they could focus on the mission and the task that God has given them. He calls them soldiers after that. And he says that, uh, excuse me, athletes after that. And he says that just like an athlete that's training for the Olympic Games plays by the rules, so pastors must also play by the rules. There's a set of rules for elders and leaders. He, he then likens them, and this should hit home in our community, to farmers. And he says that elder pastors should be like hard-working farmers, getting up early, going to bed late, uh, doing the hard work of tilling spiritual ground. And so, uh, just to catch you guys up, for the past couple years, as we have been talking in different uh, meetings that we have had, in different congregational meetings, um, I always give kind of a state of the church address. And, and in the past two, at least three years, one of the major points of emphasis that I have made is church leadership. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I'm bringing it back to mind. And I've talked about how we want to pursue biblical leadership, how we want to have a leadership structure that, that is healthy, and how I feel like a healthy church is fostered by healthy leadership. And so we have uh, been, probably for a year and a half now, in our leadership team, on our board, been pursuing this goal. And what I've been doing is, is I took about a year to, during our leadership meetings, to instruct and to teach about what the Bible says about leadership in the church. And so we've been talking about 
uh, eldership and what that looks like. We've been talking about deacons and what they do. And what are the differences between deacons and elders and those kind of things? What are the qualifications for elders? What should they do? And so I have for about a year now in our leadership meetings been instructing and teaching and trying to paint what I feel like is a clear biblical picture of what church government, if you will, or church leadership should look like. And that has culminated probably about a year ago, maybe give take, in Jay and I taking an initiative in seeking potential elders in the church. And so Jay and I began meeting, and we began praying, and we began talking, and we sought the Lord's face on men that we felt like were pastor elders in this congregation, that we could see them doing that. We went through the qualifications. We went through what elder pastors do. And to make a long story short, we came up with kind of a short list of names, one of which has gone through the process of talking with Jay, if you want to call it interviewing with us, that you, you, you could say that, uh, but walking this uh, potential elder through the process, uh, encouraging him and his wife to seek God's face, to seek leadership, to seek direction, and to seek if this is uh, indeed not only his desire, as the Bible says it should be, but God's calling, as the Bible said it sh- says it should be as well. And so that process has culminated probably about a month ago, maybe two months ago, um, with uh, Jay and I and the leadership team uh, recommending to you Dan Schumacher as our next potential elder. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit more, in fact a lot more, in the coming weeks about this whole process. I want to flesh this out for you. I want to share with you um, exactly what we talked about, exactly how the conversations went. You'll have an opportunity to hear from Dan and his wife as well um, about how that went for them and, and hear their testimony and, and how that went. But the purpose of this sermon series called The Ox is simply for us to understand God's call, God's direction, uh, what does healthy leadership look like in the church, and why is it so essential. Um, And so more uh, to come uh, on the process and from Dan and Barb uh, in the coming weeks. But what I would like to do today in part one of The Ox is uh, to simply do this. I want to step aside, I want to step back, if you will, from specifically talking about eldership, although we'll talk about elders and, uh, and, their, and their qualifications and what they do a little bit in this sermon series. I want to take a step back and ask the question, what is the big picture of church leadership? I mean, what has God outlined as a healthy, biblical model for not just eldership, but for leadership in the church as a whole? And so that's what we're going to tackle this morning in part one, the ox and his church. Just by way of preview, in the upcoming weeks, part two, the ox and his duties, we're going to talk specifically about who are elder pastors, what do they do, what is their job, how do they function, what are their qualifications, how is one called and appointed. We're going to talk about these issues in the week to come in part two. The ox and his duties. And then finally, in part three, the ox and his people, um, that sermon will be directed specifically towards the church, towards you guys. How is the church as a whole, the sheep, supposed to respond to its shepherd, to its leadership, to its elders? Uh, What are the responsibilities of the church to its leadership? So that's where we're going for the next three weeks. Um, So let's do this. Uh, Four, kind of four parts to our sermon. We're going to examine what I would consider a biblical model of church government, a biblical model of church leadership. How is authority and love and leadership supposed to flow in the church? And so it all begins with point number one, uh, with Pastor Jesus. It all begins with Pastor Jesus. Um, I'm borrowing this term from uh, Mark Driscoll. I was about to call him my buddy because I feel like I know him so personally. Never met him, but he's my buddy. Um, He coined this term, Pastor Jesus. And so when we begin to talk about leadership 
and authority in the church. We must begin with Jesus as the ultimate head, as the ultimate authority in the church. I would say that Jesus is our senior pastor. Jesus is, is our senior pastor. I'm not, I'm not your senior pastor. Ultimately, Jesus is our senior pastor. And we're going to look at a couple passages. Uh, turn with me to 1 Peter. So flip to the right in your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to begin. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we get this wonderful image of Jesus as a shepherd, as a pastor, if you will, as the chief shepherd amongst under shepherds, that is elders. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. should be on the screen. Peter says this to the elders in Asia Minor. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so he says, I'm, a, I'm an elder like you. This is my exhortation to you. And here it is in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What does that look like? He's going to say, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so he's instructing elders. We're going to look at this passage in detail in a couple weeks. So I'm going to focus in on verse 3 because we see this image of Pastor Jesus. Verse 4, notice this. And when the chief shepherd, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, a wonderful promise to those who are pastor elders. Um, But the point that I want to make is this. Um, Jesus is our senior pastor. He shepherds the church. Notice, he is the chief shepherd. And by implication, the elders that that, uh, Peter says are to shepherd the flock of God, they are merely under shepherds. Do you see that? Jesus is chief shepherd. Elders, pastors are under shepherds. They are assistant pastors, if you will. Jesus is the senior pastor, and the eldership team are the assistant associate pastors, if you will. And so uh, we see in 1 Peter 5, Jesus, he is pastor Jesus. Turn backwards now with me to Ephesians 1. So flip backwards a little bit to the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, we see another image of the authority uh, and the role of Jesus in the church. Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at verses 22 through 23. Again, it should be on the, ver- uh, on the board. Verse 22, uh, Paul says this, And he, referring to God, the Father, and he put all things under his feet, speaking of Jesus, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head. Notice the word. And he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now the point that I want to make here is simply this. Uh, In the image that Paul is, is portraying is the church is like a body. It has a head, like I have a head and you have a head. It has arms and legs and feet and uh, toes and eyes and ears and mouth and nose, right? Uh, it has all of the body parts. Um, but notice that Jesus is the head. Paul says that Jesus is the, is the head and that at least denotes a couple things. Uh, first of all, it denotes that Jesus is the authority in the church. He rules over the church, just as our head, in a sense, is the authority over our body. Um, without our head, 
We don't live. <laughs> and without Jesus as head, a church might function, but it's a decapitated church. And it does not function properly. So Jesus is our authority. But secondarily, I think, it also implies that Jesus is our leadership. That is, um, what directs our fingers to go like this and our toes to go like that? Is it not our brain? Is it not our head that leads the body? And so, simply put, what I want us to see is this. Um, If you're doing an organizational chart, which I'll show you in a second, um, Jesus is the senior pastor. He rules the church. He has ultimate authority to to the church. And what that means is that any talk of leadership in the church, any human leadership in the church, whether elders, pastors, deacons, uh, what that means is that that leadership is what I would call a derived leadership. Hear that. It's a derived leadership. That is, it's not an inherent leadership uh, authority. We don't have inherent authority. Our authority stems from Jesus, and our authority is limited to our faithful adherence to Jesus and his teachings. Do you hear that? It's limited to our faithful adherence to Jesus and his teachings. Again, Driscoll in his book says it very well. He says, Church leaders must be good sheep who follow their chief shepherd, Jesus well before they're fit to be shepherds leading any of his sheep. And so what that means is that leaders in the church should be following Jesus, simply put, or they should not be leaders in the church. And so if we want to look at a chart, we're going to see this several times. So this is what it would look like. Notice the top of the chart. I think we have the image next. Uh, At the top of the chart, so to speak, is Jesus, is Pastor Jesus, the cross, he is the authority. He is the senior pastor. In fact, on my original slide, I had Pastor Jesus. And Shelley said, no, erase that, because some people will think you're saying the pastor's first <laughs> and then Jesus. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so it's Jesus, Pastor Jesus. He's at the top. And so uh, you can move away from that slide. What does that mean, practically speaking, for us as a church? Um, it means a lot of things, but let me share a couple things what it means. Um, first of all, we shouldn't assume this. We shouldn't in our churches, in this church, and in any other church, we shouldn't just say, well, of course, Jesus is our leader, he's our shepherd, okay, let's just assume it, let's not talk about it, let's not put him in our org chart, right? Um, we, We must not assume this or else we will lose this. What happens when Jesus isn't pastor Jesus in the church? What happens when he's not the authority? What happens when he's not the head? A lot of things, uh, but number one, doctrine is endangered. The first thing that happens when Jesus is not pastor is that doctrine is endangered because Jesus and his teachings, uh, both in the Gospels and the authoritative teachings of his followers, the apostles that we receive in the New Testament as a whole, um, that's not the authority. Jesus and his teachings are not the authority, but something else. And so what happens is that uh, doctrine or uh, truth claims that are palatable, things that are culturally acceptable, things that might be politically correct become the doctrine of the church, become what is taught and followed. And Jesus is not the only way. He is one of the ways. The cross becomes an example merely to be followed and a lifestyle to be emulated rather than a sacrifice for our sins that the Father pours his wrath out upon. Hell is no longer eternal, but simple, uh, simple, uh, simply temporary or even non-existent. And so when Pastor Jesus goes... Doctrine is thrown out the window for what is accepted. And as Paul writes to Timothy in one of his letters, he says they will accumulate for themselves teachers 
that will simply tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. That happens in churches where Jesus is not the head. Secondly, secondly, not only is doctrine endangered, but other missions for the church are adopted. When Jesus isn't our leader, um, when Jesus doesn't set the agenda, when his mission to make disciples of all the nations and to baptize them and to teach them, that then becomes secondarily or forgotten altogether when Jesus uh, does not practically lead a church. And so other things become the mission of the church. Other things like merely seeking our comfort, what makes us happy as a church, what we like, what our preferences are. And it doesn't matter what people who are outside unbelievers think or care about. Um, Attendance becomes the mission. If we just have a big church, then we're doing fine. And believe me, folks, there are a lot of big churches with big attendance, but Jesus isn't pastor, and the mission is not Jesus's mission. They simply have numbers. Not against numbers. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Financial stability can become the goal. We just want to have a big bank account. We want to be able to pay off our debt. We want to be able to pay our pastor, whatever it may be. Facilities, that can become the thing. New buildings, basketball courts, whatever it is. Again, these things aren't inherently bad, but when they replace uh, the Great Commission, and they, become, and they become a sub-mission, then our mission is lost. In these kind of churches, the congregational vote matters more than Jesus' vote. And we must not become a church where Jesus is not pastor. I want to share one quick illustration of this before we move on to the next uh, group of people that we're talking about um, as I take a drink of coffee. So, I was a, a youth pastor in Dallas before I came here. And uh, we were at a church, and it was called Northway, Northway Baptist Church. Um, man, if I could share with you uh, the experiences that I've had there. But one of the things that I've, I heard, talking to one of the elders in the church, uh, long story short, the elders were really pushing for some significant changes in, in, in the church. It was hard. It was a difficult time. Uh, in my estimation, none of the changes were unbiblical. In fact, I think they were thoroughly biblical in their pursuit. And so in the midst of conversations, uh, our elder was having a conversation with one of the ladies in the church, and she had complaints about, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what it was, but she was complaining about some of the things that were happening and some of the proposed uh, ideas. And so our pastor was uh, attempting to root what what they were doing in, in the authority of Scripture and the mission of Jesus and saying, this, this is what the Bible clearly says on some of these issues. Uh, they're black and white. We need to be missional and all of these things. And I'll quote from the, lips of, uh, from the lips of this pastor elder what this lady said, and I quote, I don't care what the Bible says. Just don't change anything until I die. That's what she said. And in churches where Jesus isn't pastor, practically speaking, You get those kind of comments. And so we begin with Pastor Jesus. Secondly, under the authority of Jesus is uh, the, what I would call, pastors, elders, overseers. uh, Your translation may say bishops. Um, I'll just call them the elders for now. I'll call them the elders. And so uh, next we get uh, elders. And so under deriving their authority from Jesus according to their faithful adherence to Jesus, is a faithful group of men that I will call the elders. Again, um, in, in your New Testament, you basically get three or four names for one person. And so there are different titles for this one person, for this one office, I should say, for this multiplicity of people. They're called elders, pastors, overseers, and again, some translations may say bishops. But 
they're the same person, and these titles highlight the different roles or functions. So, for instance, uh, when the Bible speaks of an elder, um, originally the word simply referred to someone who was older in age, but it, it was more than that. Just because someone is 80 doesn't make them spiritually qualified to be an elder. The, the term essentially uh, came to focus on the idea of his character. He has proven character. He is respected in the church. He has the experience to lead the church. So the elder has this. Focus on his character. Uh, the term overseer is also used. And instead of focusing on character, it emphasizes the function of leadership. It emphasizes the function of managing or leading the church as the term one who oversees something, like a manager, does. And so elders, emphasis on character. Overseer, emphasis on function, on administration, if you will, managing, leading. Uh, And then you have this idea of pastor-teacher, this word pastor, and that emphasizes uh, people. It emphasizes the elder, teacher, pastor's role of caring for people, of loving people, of leading people. And so we have this one office that has multiple names. It shouldn't really uh, bother us that much um, because this is how we are in our relationships within our family or or within our community. Because one, I'm a father. That's a title that I use. In relationship to my son, I'm a father. In relationship to my wife, I'm a husband. In relationship uh, to my sister, I'm a brother. In relationship to my mom and dad, I'm a son. And you get where I'm going with this. They all emphasize different areas of relationships, but I can legitimately call myself all of those because I am. And so what we see is that there is this group of men, we'll call them elders, In part two, the ox and his duties, we're going to talk in detail about what do elders do? What do elder pastor uh, overseers do? I mean, what's their function? What qualifies them? What kind of a man is fit to do that kind of a job? We're going to talk about that specifically in a couple weeks, so hold that as an aside. But what I would like to do simply is look at a couple scriptures. Uh, One of them is the same scripture we've seen already. And establish the fact that the normative pattern of leadership in the New Testament for almost all of the churches that we see in the New Testament is that of a plurality of elder leaders. It's, it's, it's the norm. It, it shows up almost in every single church. And so I just want to sh- look at a couple passages. So turn backwards again with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 is where I want to go. And we'll start in verse 21. Um, On the screen, it's just verse 23, but we'll start for a brief context in chapter 14, verses 21, as we get there together. What I want us to see in this first thing is that uh, we learn this from Paul's example. Remember, Paul is a great missionary. He went on three missionary journeys in the New Testament. And what I want you to see is that it was his pattern. This was in the first missionary journey. He's kind of wrapping up his first missionary journey. He's planted bunches of churches. And what he's going to do is he's going to send some of his apostolic um, representatives back to these churches, and he's going to tell them, and he's going to go and say, let's appoint let's point godly leadership now. It's so important. And so Paul appointed elders in every church as he planted them. And what we see, as I mentioned before, is that almost every church in the New Testament has some kind of reference to eldership. So uh, chapter 14, verse 21. When they preached the gospel to that city, referring to the city of Derby, Paul and his buddies, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These were cities that they had just planted churches in. 
This is what they did, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had, here's the key verse, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so simply put, it was Paul's practice to establish a plurality of eldership in every church that he planted. Again, turn with me back to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to reread this, uh, looking at it uh, from a bit of a different angle. 1 Peter chapter 5. Sorry, I told you it would be a little bit of Bible drill today. 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to emphasize. What, in addition to the establishment of eldership, what we see is that Paul and Peter give elders, qualified, called, godly, servant leaders, uh, authority to lead, to pastor, to oversee, and to rule the church. So read these verses. Paul is going to talk to elders, and notice the verbs. Notice the verbs. What is he telling that elders are to do? I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Here it is. Shepherd. There's verb number one, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Number two, exercising oversight, that is there to lead, to manage, not under compulsion, but willing uh, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, implying that there are sheep in the charge of the shepherds, but being examples to them. And so simply put, I just want to establish this idea that the normative pattern of leadership in the church is is a plural elders. Uh, as I said before, not only is there a plurality of names, pastor, elder, shepherd, deacon, uh, excuse me, uh, elder, not only are there a plurality of names, but uh, every every place in the New Testament that we see talk of eldership, it's always in the plural except for two instances, and that's when Peter refers to himself as an elder and when John refers to himself as an elder. And what that means is that uh, elders are supposed to be plural. There's supposed to be many elders. We're not talking about a one-man show here. Uh, John MacArthur says it very well. The norm in the New Testament was a plurality of elders. There is no reference in all the New Testament to a one-pastor congregation. So let's just let that sink in for a little bit because in all of the churches that I have been a part of, it was a one pastor congregation. That is, there was one guy, one leader, sole authority. And what I think the Bible is clearly saying is that while there is a first among equals, there is uh, and there can be a leader among the elders, but they are co-equal, co-authority, co-responsibility. There should be multiple elders in a church. That is abundantly clear, I think as we look at it. And so if we look at the chart again, notice again, Pastor Jesus is on the top, and uh, under him, I just chose three for the sake of choosing three. There's no prescribed number of elders. But we see that there are to be elders, plural, in the church, and they are to shepherd the sheep, hence the little sheep thing. Uh, So a couple things. What does this mean for our church? Uh, This is really significant, the fact that there is a plurality of elders. Number one, uh, what it means is that the elders... Uh, strengths are emphasized and their weaknesses are mitigated. Their strengths are emphasized and their weaknesses are mitigated. And what I mean by that is that every elder, every pastor has certain things that they do well. There are certain things that I do well. There are certain things that I'm pretty crummy at and you don't want me in charge of it, like IE administration. You don't want me to plan your party. 
It's going to be a bad party. There will be no food. There will be no drinks. People will show up at different times. It's just going to be a stinker of a party. You don't want me to do that. Um, but I'm really good at teaching, and I think I'm okay at leading. Uh, and that is how it is in elder, with elders in any church. Uh, some will have strengths. Some will have weaknesses. And so number one, they're balanced. The strengths can be brought out, and the weaknesses can be mitigated. I want to share personally a bit um, on my experience with this. I have never been uh, a pastor elder before, before here, um, but I have had the great privilege of kind of seeing uh, this develop from scratch. Again, the church that I was at prior, uh, Northway, I was a youth pastor there. But they moved to a kind of eldership uh, style of church, and they found three um, and appointed three elders. And the way that this elder team worked, I was good friends with all three of them, and they kind of gave me access to themselves and the inner workings of the church. And so I learned a ton just by learning from their mistakes and their, and their strengths. And so, for instance, uh, our, our lead elder, our senior pastor, lead elder, I would call him, his name was Brent. And uh, he did uh, the teaching in the church. He was the main preacher. And uh, he had a lot of different strengths. He was a fantastic leader. I mean, he could rally, um, uh, he could, he could rally elephants to storm uh, a den of mice, you know. He could get people to, 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 lead, uh, to follow him. He was a fantastic leader. He was a wonderful visionary. I mean, daily he was like, hey, what about this? What about that? I have this vision. What do you think about that? I mean, he was one of those people that could just see the future and paint a picture to where you would say, yes, I will follow you over that hill and we're going to take it. He was wonderful. Administratively, a lot like me. He couldn't plan a lick. He was very poor. Uh, when it came to people skills, sometimes he was a bit pushy. Uh, sometimes he didn't consider how things that he wanted to do would, would f- impact other people. So uh, there came uh, our second elder by the name of Woody. And yes, that's his real name. I think it's Woodrow, actually, but we called him Woody, like the Toy Story, you know. <laughs> Anyways, I ramble on. Uh, what he was really good at was this. He was the administrator of the group. Uh, he's a lawyer. So that should tell you something. But every detail, every angle, if we do this, then that. If we do this, then that. What's the process? How are we going to do that? I mean, he had administration on his mind all the time. And so that went well because Brent was like, go, 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 go. Let's do it today. And Brent's, uh, Woody's like, let's just pray <laughs> and let's just wait. And do you, do you realize what we're going to have to do? The city's going to have to be called and blah, blah, blah. You know, he was the detail kind of guy. Now, what would happen if you had Brent and no Woody? Things would just initiate, but it would just fall to pieces. There would be no follow-through. And so that's what Woody brought to the table. Uh, enter in uh, Bob. Bob was our third elder. Enter in Bob. And his strength was that he had a great desire uh, to love people. He was a shepherd par excellence. That is, he loved people. And so Brent would be like, this is what we need to do. We need to do it right now. And Woody would say, no, we need to do that in six months because you have to think about X, Y, and Z. And Bob would say, but how would people respond to that? How would that affect so-and-so's life? Um, are we going to do this lovingly? You see the, the picture that I'm painting? That's the advantage of a plurality of eldership. You have strengths that are emphasized and weaknesses that are mitigated. Secondly, this is good because it provides accountability. Did the lights just go up? <laughs> Thanks, Gary. <laughs> you wanted me to. Like, uh, <laughs> Is that my cue? Is my time up? <laughs> uh, it provides accountability. And what I mean by that is this. It provides accountability um, uh, to the pastor and to the church. And so first of all, it provides accountability to protect the church from a dictating pastor. It protects the church from a dictating pastor. Did you notice in First Peter what, what Paul, uh, excuse me, what P- 
Peter says that they shouldn't do? Uh, It says, not domineering over those in your charge. Because that can be a tendency of leaders. They can domineer. They can bully. They can lead without consideration of their people. And so what this does is it provides protection uh, and accountability to the church. And so by way of illustration, again, uh, I have some family members who we, t- we, we talk often, and uh, when they come in, we talk church because it's a big part of our life. And uh, we talk church, and we have things going, good and bad, and all that stuff. And uh, without being overly detailed, a lot of the, the conversation as it relates to their church goes something like this. We love our pastor, and he's, he's a good job, but we feel like he's taking too much. We feel like he's uh, maybe dictating. We feel like there's no accountability. We feel like he can do financially whatever he pleases. We feel like he uh, runs the church and no one can approach him. There's no checks and balances for the leadership of the church. And that can be devastating to a church. And so it provides accountability to you guys. But secondly, uh, it provides account- accountability and protection for me, uh, for a pastor, or for the group of elders. And that is... In a single pastor system, you are the ultimate authority. You make all the decisions. And so whatever implications are of those decisions, of those leadership, comes back squarely on me. Instead of squarely on me and you and you and you, speaking of other elders. And so it protects the pastors in the sense that it's not just you making a decision. You're not making decisions. You're not leading in a vacuum. Going back to the strengths. Um, all of these are Northway's exa- Northway examples because it's my experience. I have seen um, when, uh, when things got really bad at Northway and there was a lot of contention and a lot of strife, um, I have been a, a part of a congregational meeting where most of the angst and the frustration was directed towards the senior pastor, the lead elder, because he was the leader uh, and he initiated and, and the visionary and all of that stuff. Um, but you know what I saw? It was, it was a marvelous thing. As those four men three men, excuse me, set up on the stage and fielded questions and accusations, most of them unfounded, most of them out of rebellion. Um, I saw those two guys sit with their senior leader and protect and deflect and take responses and when, when lies were spoken about him, he didn't have to defend himself because the others stepped in for him. And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And so number two, we have... Pastor Jesus, we have elders. These are going to go a lot quicker. Number three, under the elders are what I would call the deacons. Uh, The Bible calls them deacons as well, so that's a safe place to be. Uh, But essentially, they serve as assistants to the elders. Um, This is a little bit more murky, but I think we have a decently clear picture. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Again, we're flipping back. Acts chapter 6. What I think is happening in Acts chapter 6 is simply this. Um, I think this describes to us the initiation of what would eventually be the role of a deacon in the church. Uh, Long story short, Acts chapter 6, we have this. The apostles, this was early on in the life of the church, the apostles were getting overwhelmed. They were getting overextended. The church was growing and growing, and there were all sorts of needs, tangible, physical, spiritual, doctrinal needs, and their heads were just about to explode. And there was uh, a bit of a controversy, and what they did is they appointed men who were qualified and godly, um, 
to basically assist them so that they could focus on what they were supposed to do, which was prayer and preaching. And so let's read this account, which I think is kind of the forerunner to the office of the deacon. Uh, we'll, we will read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, notice that, they were getting busy, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek uh, the Greeks, arose among, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Those widows are getting more bread than us. That's what was happening. And the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will uh, appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And what I think was born uh, eventually was the office of the deacon. Uh, people who would assist the elders in whatever way is necessary. So turn with me now back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this will be our last scripture. No, I'm just kidding. Second to last scripture reference. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter, excuse, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Here, uh, Paul has been outlining the qualifications for elders or overseers, and then he goes on to talk about the qualifications of deacons. We're going to talk about this in the future, but the point that I want you to see is that this word now doesn't just mean servant. It doesn't just mean, and that's what deacon means, by the way, a servant. Simply one originally who served tables. You serve food, you clean up. It was just a, it was a task-oriented kind of thing. Here, I think, for the first time in the New Testament, it's now an office. It's an official function in the church. And so let's just read through this. 1 Timothy 8, uh, 3, 8. Deacons likewise must be diligent, uh, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Let them, all, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. If their wives or women, some translations will say, likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith uh, that is in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. The point that I want you to see is simply this. This is what deacons are. Uh, when it, there's no specific, uh, there's nothing specific that says deacons must do X, Y, Z. They simply do what the elders need them to do. They're simply servants. Again, Mark Driscoll is helpful here. Deacons occupy the second highest position of leadership in the church. Practically, elders and deacons work together, and I like this image, like left hand and right hands, with elders specializing in leading by their words and deacons specializing in leading by their works. And so let's once again look at our chart. Um, it'll be hammered in your head. Pastor Jesus, pastor elders, table-waiting deacons. That's what they do. They're servants. These men are to be servants both downward to the sheep and upward to the elders. Finally, we're going to wrap this, this, uh, this puppy up. Finally, uh, there is what the Bible calls the congregation, uh, the sheep, the church, the saints. That is, those believers in Jesus Christ that are under this authority and this servant leadership model. So turn with me for our final Bible text. First Peter, turn to your right. First Peter chapter 5. Oh, no, excuse me, that's not right. Philippians chapter 1. That's where I want to go. Philippians chapter 1. We see in Philippians chapter 1 this threefold um, kind of breakdown, if you will, of these groups in the church. 
Um, again, First uh, Peter 5, we, we see them called sheep. They're sheep. Um, but notice this, first one, first one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, and here's the threefold breakdown of the church. To all the saints, that is the congregation, the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, and then he's going to talk about the two leadership categories, with the overseers, that are, that are the elders, and the deacons. And so what I want us to simply see is that finally, under this uh, leadership model, uh, is the congregation. We're going to talk about, like I said, in our third part, it's going to be specifically talking about what's the role as the congregation interacts with its leadership. Is it wholly passive? No, it's not. Um, uh, are they responsible to, to hold leadership accountable? Absolutely. Um, are there qualifications to leadership that the church should hold its leaders to? You bet. Um, also, are they called to place themselves under godly authority? Uh, and obey. Uh, You bet. And so we're going to focus on that down the road. But what I want us to see is that Paul says, overseers, deacons, saints, the congregation. And so as we close, I want to ask you this question. Um, Paul uh, says that those who are under this leadership structure are saints. Does that strike you? uh, Does that strike you as interesting? Um, I don't know about you, but I don't go around in everyday conversation saying, you know what, I was real saintly today. I'm such a saint. Uh, you know, I don't think of myself in that term. I don't know about you. Um, we should. Um, but I don't consider myself that. That's a really generous thing, don't you think, for Paul to ascribe to a believer in Christ. And yet, it's absolutely true. And my f- final appeal is this. Paul calls them saints not because they are saintly, necessarily. Paul calls them saints not because they have perfect lives. Um, Paul calls them saints because they have been purchased by Jesus Christ, because the blood of Jesus has covered them and has made them perfect and acceptable to God the Father. Jesus, on the cross, bore the, the wrath for their sins in their place, and upon his resurrection, gave them eternal life by placing their faith in Jesus. And so these, these people Paul's addressing aren't purely church members. They're not a part of a role. They, it's not because they were baptized later or as infants. Uh, it's not because of what they've done or what they give to the church. He calls them saints, because God the Father sees them as perfect and righteous and justified because of their faith in Christ. And so I want to ask you, would Paul describe you as a saint? Not because of your lifestyle necessarily, although I hope it's saintly. Um, Would he call you a saint not because you're a church member, not because you go to church, not because of what you've done, not because you're good enough? Um, Would he look at you and call you a saint? Are you a part of the congregation? Not do you come on Sunday mornings, not are you on the rolls. Um, Are you a saint because you have been forgiven of your sins by personal faith in Jesus Christ? Then you become a saint. Then you are a sheep under the great shepherd, Jesus, and under his sub-shepherds, the elders, under the the, uh, assistance of the deacons. So my prayer is this. May the current oxes at Grace, myself, and Jay, and uh, potentially Dan, and the future oxes at Grace, some of you who uh, may not even think of yourselves as potential elder material, but um, God has a calling on your life, and we're looking at you. (laughs) We're looking for you. Um, May we, may the oxes at Grace, plow a spiritually fertile ground, and may we reap a plentiful harvest. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you touch on all areas of, of life, and uh, most specifically, you share and you sh- show us how you desire your church to be led. And so, Father, help us as we seek to be faithful to your word. Um, help us to do that. Help us. Give us grace. Give those of us who are uh, oxes, who are pastors and elders, help us to be good shepherds. Help us to serve, to not domineer, to be examples to the flock. Help us to guide and instruct and rule um, well as we follow Jesus. Father, I pray for the deacons in this church that they would be good assistants, that they would serve those of us in pastoral leadership well, and that they would serve the people, the sheep of the flock, well with all godliness and sacrifice. And Father, I pray for those of us who are sheep, as we all are, um, that they would follow well, that they would keep accountable well, um, and that they would be good godly sheep. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. I want to invite you guys to lunch. We'll see you next week.